Unfortunately, we don't have a new episode this week, so we'll present you with another best of. Uh, Our schedules just did not allow us to get anything recorded after episode 100 until about mid-January due to family obligations and holiday travel. So enjoy your holidays, enjoy this best of episode, and we'll see you here in about a month. Hey everybody out there, I know uh, some of you have been listening to us for uh, quite a while. Others maybe have just started to join in. We thought we would start kind of going back and doing some best of. Uh, So... We thought this week we would share some of the best of stories, kind of condensed versions, if you will. And we hope that you like them. And if there's something of interest, you can always go back. We're going to tag these where you can go back and listen to the entire episode. And as always, thanks for listening. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Have you ever heard of the Mandela Effect? Uh, The Mandela Effect uh, is also known as uh, the False Memory Effect, a psychological phenomenon where people recall something that did happen that didn't happen or recall it differently from the way most everyone else recalls it. Uh, Early work in the Mandela Effect was conducted by psychological pioneers Pierre Genet and Sigmund Freud. As, as time progresses, uh, you, you go online, there's an entire website dedicated to the Mandela Effect that cites hundreds, if maybe not thousands, of examples of things that are remembered differently. Uh, Mandela Effect is obviously named for a specific event, which is the death of Nelson Mandela. Uh, many people believe that he had died in the 80s in prison. Um, just that, that seems to be the, the number one item when you, obviously, when you research Mandela Effect, that's going to be the first one that pops up. He lived until 2013. And he passed away a free man outside of outside of prison. And as a kid growing up in the 80s as a teenager, I vividly had him in my mind that, you know, he died in prison in the yeah. 80s. But the Mandela effect, if, if you start looking at it in, in a little more detail, and that's why we've got Alex with us here today. Dun, dun. You, you, start hey, hey. To, you start to get into some, maybe we're crossing some borders here. Maybe we're crossing some lines. To, it's a little more than just false memory. So... Alex, I, I'd, I'd say I have to do with. Um, I don't want to get too deep into it quite off the bat. I want to talk more about Mandela Effect right off, but uh, kind of an overlaps of timelines or parallel universes or time paradox is kind of what I would say. Um, because if it's a false memory, but someone truly believes it, who's to say that that it didn't happen to that person? Maybe in an alternate timeline, Jason Mandela is it Jason? No. No. Nelson. 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 My bad. I wasn't born <laughs> in that time frame, so I'm not familiar with this character. It's all right. You're uh, a young I know the last extremely name. young whippersnapper. Yeah. Uh, Mandela, if he dies in prison, maybe he died in prison in an alternate timeline, and that person's from that timeline. And maybe it's not a false memory, but an actual memory of theirs, but they've somehow, because of time travel, if you believe in that, you can then 
loopholes. So like the whole DC universe with comics, exactly. Marvel universes. Uh, you change Star Trek one little and... thing. I just want to go back and change this one little thing, and then a thousand other things change because of that one choice. One of the the explanations for the Mandela thing that I specifically found, which does involve time travel, was that you know maybe maybe you were sitting there watching TV in the eighties, kind of minding your own business, and maybe somehow you were pushed just a hair forward in time. And so you were watching TV and you saw Mandela's funeral from 2013, but you were you were in the 80s at the time. But then there, there are some that are pretty significant that are hard to, to discount. So I think the main one is the Berestein Bears. It's the Berestein Bears. Well, see, as far as I know, I'm remembering it incorrectly because I believe Berenstain is proper, but I don't ever call – I've I never called them the Berenstain Bears. I can't even remember anybody saying the Berenstain Bears. No. I remember it vividly as Berenstain yeah. Bears. Stain. I don't ever remember calling him that. The one Star Wars fan remembers Revenge of the Jedi, not Return of the Jedi, and he never went and watched Star Wars, but he saw the one trailer for Revenge of the Jedi, and so that was what he... But there was proof, like to my point, that, that was I proof mean, there of that. Proof, that there exists. Was yeah, Revenge of the Jedi figures, was a thing. Movie posters was even put I, out. I can't know, find, and, and, and I guess that's the weird thing about the Mandela effect, is even though I vividly remember it, I cannot find anywhere on the internet of any sort of, you know, I guess, trustworthy source that hasn't been obviously photoshopped. Or uh, go back to Star Wars again for a second. Luke, I am your father. Yeah. See, everybody remembers that one, but I know that it's, no, no, I am your father. Yes. I am your father. Luke, I am your father. Because he goes, Obi-Wan never told you about your father, did he? I just remember Vader going. told me enough. He told me you killed him. I remember Vader going, (laughs) no! No. (laughs) That's the wrong movie. That's why. Strike that story. We try to to ignore Vader yelling. (laughs) (laughs) Most horrible scene ever. I like to think about it, um, again, like time travel. If time travel exists, and it probably does somewhere in the future, if someone in the future comes in the in the past and he changes a slight thing, what happens if it causes like a glitch in the timeline? That and that's riff. what causes the Mandela effect to exist to begin with. Uh, one of the, the theories that I had heard somewhere along the lines was, you know, if you looked at timelines or, or, or no, alternate universes, you look at like alternate universes as like bubbles, soap bubbles. And where they kind of touch each other, you know, when they split apart, maybe one takes a little something from the other one. So where you had Berenstein, Bear, in your history, you know, these these alternate dimensions, these alternate universes kind of buddy up against each other for a second. And when they separate, you pull Berenstein Bears into your reality, even though you never remembered it that way. And then their analogy. Yeah, you know, you're pulling you're pulling whatever it was in their universe into our universe. So for me, um, I'm I'm a huge Matrix theory believer. So um, my thing is, uh, if you go through and you get into it, um, you if you log off the server and you log back on a server, you don't always connect from the same IP at the same time. So theoretically, you could log back in and be in an alternate timeline. You know, you watch a movie like The Matrix, and it seems pretty far-fetched, but then again, there's been a lot of talk lately of, you know, are we living in a simulation? And if we were, would we want to know? I mean, yeah, I think it would be, be mass chaos if you could prove it, because if, if we knew that nothing we did mattered in the end. I, I, well, that, to that, the Matrix that, aspect a little bit, I know growing up when I was much younger, Deja Vu. You know, kind of, kind of yeah. similar. Um, well, and they specifically—that's a yeah. They specifically cite that's a glitch, that's a glitch in the, in the matrix. matrix. Yes. Uh, I can't tell you again as a child how many times that would happen. I would almost like a weekly occurrence. And then as I've grown older, maybe I've accepted the matrix as it is, and my my brain's more programmed to accept it, if you will. But you know, deja vu is kind of one of those deals. And, and most people, I think, if if they're honest, they've had that happen. You'll walk into 
maybe like a, a bookshop or a store, and you've never been there, but yet all of a sudden it clicks and you're like, oh, if I go around this hallway, down this way, make a right, that's one of the books I'm looking for. And sure enough, you, you go down there and you're like, what just happened? But, and again, like I said, some of these you can kind of dismiss a little bit with logic like that. And I think that's kind of what tears the Mandela effect down. But well, like you said, there's thousands of, of these. Well, and if only one of them's true. And, and I can understand. Then it means the other ones yeah. have a possibility to be as true as well. One of us might have a glitch, if you will, or remember something differently. But what is unique to me about the, the, the Mandela effect is some of these examples, we're not talking like I remember it this way hundreds of thousands of people remember it this way. It's not, you know, a, a case by case. Yeah, they're instance. usually not uh, isolated to just one or two people. So you take a simple question of, is it Berenstein or Berenstain? <laughs> look where and we've went. You, like I said, you, you follow this little rabbit hole and you can end up talking about all kinds of things. You know, I, I like, I've got some notes here, but you know, they don't even really touch on anything that we're talking about. <laughs> you know, like I said, I, I, I look at some examples. Like myself, I've been dealing with this, my own Mandela effect thing for a while now. And I've, I've talked to Eric about this before. As a kid, I, I used to read these books about the unexplained and monsters and, and whatnot. And I know that I've seen a photograph of a Thunderbird. Uh, from the Old West days, there's probably like a dozen cowboys have this thing spread out. And it looks like a, a pteranodon, a pterodactyl. Yep. You know, when we look at the fossil record, it's got the membranous wings and the weird head crest and all that. It looks like a pterodactyl. Now, how the big picture. do you remember this compared to the, the cowboys? Well, I, I remember them standing, you know, in a line. So you've got 10, 12 guys standing in a row with this thing stretched out. Okay. And, you know, one 20, guy at either 20, end. 20, 30 foot length wingspan. Pretty, pretty significant sized bird or, you know, creature. Yeah. Now, I have even found on the internet where people swear up and down they've seen this photo. Now, I, now mind you, I don't remember seeing a physical photo but i remember seeing like a picture in a book right but there's argument on the internet that this photo doesn't exist that there's only an artist rendering now i remember seeing a photo as a kid in a book so this is my own like little mandela effect but obviously it doesn't just affect me because like i said i found it on the internet right. now have you heard of the oklahoma octopus they're no natural lakes in oklahoma they were all made in about the mid 20th century you have three significant lakes, the ones that are going to figure into our stories here. Lake Thunderbird, Lake Ulaga, and Lake Tinkiller. Now, there's a high mortality rate on Oklahoma lakes that seems to have increased as time goes by, with a large number of unexplained drownings and disappearances. Native American lore dating back over 200 years ago states that there were monstrous octopus-like beings in the ponds, the spring-fed ponds of Oklahoma. They called water demons. But apparently there was a creature that would lurk in these ponds that would wait for prey to come and get drinks from these freshwater ponds, this clean, clear water. And then uh, as they took their drink, it would lash out, grab them, and drag them to their death. Now apparently it had a taste for human flesh. Indian tales describe it as a leech-like creature. Now there are lots of, uh, well, I don't say lots, but there are reports of swimmers claiming that tentacles from the depths have wrapped around them and tried to pull them deeper and drown them. The, uh, the established story that sort of cements the, octo the Oklahoma octopus into the pop culture here, uh, the three teenagers were dragged under and drowned by the o Oklahoma octopus, Tyler Schumann, Ruthie Simple, and Bruce Del Roy. And some reports state that there were two other teens with them who uh, had blister-like wounds and scabs that looked like sucker marks on them. As far as sightings go, I mean, that's about it. 
You know, I, I thought there would be a deeper vein of material here well, when we got to the Oklahoma uh, octopus. I, I've got a couple others I'll share. One of the one of the stories I thought was was pretty interesting. Um, in Mays County, Oklahoma, this is on August 9th, twenty seventeen. Happened to be right after a massive storm had hit the region. Oh, uh, this sounded like a, maybe not even a thunderstorm, but possibly like a tornado. I mean, there was the. The, the newspaper was talking about the massive amounts of damage. But the local newspaper picks up a story about a local golfer who found a small octopus on the banks of the golf course lake. Uh, they had pictures of him holding this octopus up. That was It was pretty small. Uh, I'm going to say 12, 14 inches. Uh, so, you know, definitely not something lurking in the lakes that could pull somebody under. But the point was he found an octopus that was a, a true story that was aired, and obviously there was an octopus they, they in Oklahoma. Did find an octopus. Can't deny it. Can't deny it. Well, I think before we get too much further, we ought to at least describe what people see when they claim to have seen the the Oklahoma octopus. Yeah, besides the one on the golf course, <laughs> uh, they describe a a reddish brown, leathery skinned creature that's roughly the size of a horse. Uh, of course, long tentacles, uh, very octopus like. Some people. Supposedly, if you even described it as a shark with tentacles, you know, we want to talk about sightings of, you know, displaced octopuses. I have a, a John Mazurik, who, uh, outside of Mayflower, Arkansas, in December of 2003, captured a live octopus on the Lake Conway Dam. I read about this. It wasn't very big. I think all said and done, probably 8 to 12 inches. It wasn't, wasn't big, but this December, and it's clinging to the dam. This we, is cold time of season, I will say. December, I mean, even in yeah. Arkansas. That, okay. As, as becomes pretty common with sightings of octopuses in the wrong place, you know, somebody, they, they claim it must have been set free by someone from their aquarium. Oh, yes, the aquarium story. You you were talking about the prices of these things. <sighs> yeah, uh, my wife and I, I, I got to say, we, we, we look into rare breeds and strange things, and we've actually... Believe it or not, we've checked into what would it take to own a pet octopus? Yeah, we're those weird people. Um, the aquarium story. Okay, I know they throw this out so often. We talked about this with the piranhas in a previous podcast. And they're like, yeah, that's why they're at the Lake of the Ozarks. Somebody grew them in the aquarium. They got too big. Didn't want to deal with it. They threw them out. A live octopus to purchase even a small, and I'm talking inches, three, four inches, is somewhere around five to seven hundred dollars. If you had, let's just say this was a twelve-inch octopus. Why in the world would you throw that into a, a lake? There are people who would buy that. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to interject here. Yeah, it seems like a lot of money to throw away. Yeah, you might as well just throw two thousand dollars at your window <laughs> as you're driving down the highway. I mean, just because you might decide, hey, this is too big to handle anymore. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, somebody out there is crazy enough to buy it and they would love to have it. Well, we've got a couple of sightings of octopuses or, or cephalopod type creatures in Arkansas or in Arkansas. No, the, the Conway Dam was in Arkansas. No, uh, in Oklahoma, there was a, in, on April 6, uh, 2011 on the Canadian river near Oklahoma city. Uh, there's, there's photo evidence of a guy who claims to have caught a small octopus like creature. Uh, let's say the size of a the opening of a beer mug. Okay. All said and done. Okay. Uh, he was said he caught that one about 30 feet off from shore, and that he saw four or five more in the area where he was fishing. 
Interesting. Now, there's a, a lady that reported catching one of similar size October 1st, 2015, on Lake Thunderbird. She said she was fishing at a depth of about 30 feet, using minnows as live bait, and had hooked one of these octopi, octopuses, cephalopod. There's so many words we can use. Uh, and again, roughly the same size. It wasn't very big. But this supposedly is evidence that there are an unknown you know, population of octopuses in the area. <laughs> Well, first off, Morris Mill, uh, as I mentioned, was featured in uh, Ghost Hunters. That was uh, November 30th, 2011. Travel channels listed as most terrifying places in America. Uh, the mill is located in Jefferson County, Missouri. Now, that's near the small town of Hillsboro, just west of St. Louis. The original building was constructed in 1816 as a farmhouse, uh, while the area was still ruled by the Spanish under the Louisiana Territory. John H. Morse purchased the structure in 1856, about 50 years later, and added to the structure that is now 5,300 square feet that you will find today. Now, Mr. Morse was a bridge engineer and a Confederate synthesizer. He built a commercial grist mill right there on the adjacent Big River. He also built the nearby iron bridge that crosses the Big River, which you can still cross by foot today. All right, makes because he was a bridge engineer, that makes perfectly good sense. He was said to have used slave labor to quarry the stones for the building, and he would actually go on to become a state politician, uh, owning at least two general stores, a contracting company, and a hotel. Uh, the home itself was a frequent stagecoach stop, and even after his death, it was a very popular Riverside Hotel for a retreat. Now, the Morris Mill has went through several changes in its life. Uh, it has been all of these things, a private home, a speakeasy, a brothel, a Confederate hospital, underground railroad stop, possibly on an Indian burial site, multiple murder scene locations, scene of multiple hangings, a Confederate rebel safe home, crime scene of several murders, a post office, and a halfway home. Many famous people had stayed here at the building at least once, some of them multiple times. The gangster Al Capone, as well as the outlaw Jesse James and his brothers, who I read and researched are said to have worked with Mr. John Morse because of the uh, the Confederate uh, connections back in the Civil War days. Well, here with Al Capone, I have that he used it as a common rest house, but also as a speakeasy and a place for gambling. And that the police knew that you didn't go to that neck of the woods. That was controlled, and that was not a place where they were wanted. I heard that as well. And they were also fearful of the local moonshiners that was in and around that yeah, area. Yeah. Now, on that note with the gangster and the Al Capone days, um, I, was, I thought it was interesting. I found actually some newspaper clippings and stuff that was historical after the fact. But uh, Capone was bragging that uh, he served some great whiskey. From the hotel there. Well, supposedly there's still uh, some some bottles in the region that came from Capone. That's still up on the shelves around in the area, and they've held on to it all those years. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. And then it said the Morris Mill was actually is, is very popularly known that it never ran dry during the Prohibition era because of Al Capone's connections there. And uh, Apparently, it was home. The Morris, Morris Mill was home to Bertha Gifford for a while. Now, she was renowned for her cooking skills and taking care of sick neighbors and relatives. She'd make the rounds to go and visit with them. 
she acquired a reputation as an angel of mercy. And she would that. she would visit these family members, and then shortly thereafter, they would would pass on to their final rest. Now people started to get suspicious. Mm. Seemed pretty weird that both Bertha would go and visit these family members, and then they would pass. Of course, a lot of them were already close to dying. Uh, that prompted a grand jury investigation. And Bertha was arrested in 1928 in Eureka, Missouri. And she was charged with three murders at that point in time. And I think the suspicion was five total, but they charged her with three. She was put in trial uh, in Union, Missouri. And following a three-day trial, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And she was committed to Missouri State Hospital Number 4 until she passed away in 1951. Now, it is believed that she could have killed between 17 and 23 people total, right. if not more. If not more. Because, again, a lot of these people were close to dying anyway. But apparently arsenic was her weapon of choice. She would put it in into chocolates. Apparently she had killed children. I read that as well. Many I, children. I, I think here I, I have as many, maybe as many as 19. But again, it was hard to track down because arsenic was apparently available over the counter pretty commonly in at those that, days. It wasn't restricted. Yep. Now, as far as the, the hauntings go, you've got a, a list of paranormal activity. Here I have hearing footsteps, black shadows. Faces seen in mirrors, cold breezes where they don't belong, the piano in the living room playing on its own, orbs and mists, levitating objects, being touched by unseen hands, having air blown in your face. A couple that I felt really stood out to me that I found the most interesting. Uh, one group there said they were upstairs when they heard a, a strange screeching metal type sound. Ah, uh, yes. And when they went downstairs, found a fireplace poker twisted in a U-shape. Yes. And then, uh, you know, you have a, the shadow, there's a shadow person over nine feet tall that is apparently commonly seen. And then some people receive scratches, which scratches in, in haunting lore, that's typically, that's dark stuff that's there. That's demonic, kind of. And I did read that most of the scratchings there seem to be three Yeah, fingers. three fingers. Three fingers. That was kind of a little interesting. There's also a ghost child in particular they call Annabelle. That is living in the attic, they believe. A lot of paranormal researchers have taken uh, small children's dolls, toys, balls, and left them for Annabelle. And there's been some footage and video caught of, of the doll falling over, the ball rolling around, some different things like that. Just what the government's been saying about UFOs. A nice, timely topic. Uh, you know, I, seen, I, I saw some headlines recently, and, and they definitely jumped out to me again all things unexplained ufos bigfoot whatnot when you see articles about the government kind of copping to the existence of unexplained unknown aircraft well there's been conspiracies of course for decades and of course the whole roswell all of this stuff in the background but yeah all of a sudden i think it was videos started coming out of some of the uh, navy pilots i think that was december 2017 to about march yeah and the government is actually saying, oh, yeah, we've got this. Uh, yeah, our pilots recorded this, and this is a real thing. Yeah. But what really jumps out, what really started this topic was uh, July 23rd, July 24th, 2020 New York Times articles, where the Department of Defense was apparently uh, talking about UFOs. I think and one of the titles was No Longer in the Shadows. I think there were three videos specifically released by the Navy, maybe, or Air Force. I think it was all Navy. It may, Navy. One of them may have been Air Force. Um, no, my notes here say they were recorded between 2004 and 2015 over the Pacific and the East Coast. Uh, captured by, okay, I should look at my notes. Captured by naval aviators. 
and they show objects hurtling through the sky, one that rotates against the wind. Uh, the pilot's absolutely confused and in awe of these objects. You can hear them in the recordings. Uh, like one of them is moving so fast and the pilot's like, you know, hey, I pinged him. And the other pilot's like, oh my gosh, you got that thing with as fast as it's moving? I mean, utter shock. I mean, disbelief, you can tell. Yeah, these guys, uh, again, I mean, obviously it's clear that they don't know what they're looking at. And if the Navy pilot, if Navy pilots don't know what they're looking at, I'm assuming they're trained to recognize enemy aircraft. More so than any of us. The Pentagon's UFO unit will start making findings public. Uh, It's a Pentagon program that was over the years. And like I said, we'll say, you know, maybe it ties all the way back into Project Blue Book days, 1970. But they've been collecting this information. Uh, It's now part of the Office of Naval Intelligence. And I think the actual name of the program right now is the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force. Which is kind of a name. I I did come across that. I also came across uh, government files released in 2007 mentioned the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Now, supposedly, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, boy, that's a mouthful, uh, was founded in 2007, and the Defense Department officials said uh, as of 2017, that was null and void, didn't exist anymore, well, maybe over, it maybe it became this aerial phenomenon task force. Maybe it changed at that time, but they said uh, there were other people that came forward and said they're telling you that ended, but we were members of that after that. Well, it's kind of like Project Blue Book. You know, they say officially it ended in 1970, but there's all kinds of accounts of Project Blue Book continuing way past that. Exactly. Exactly. Now, this unidentified aerial phenomenon task force, or the the one that. Threat assessment, I think. Yeah, advanced aerospace Uh, threat. Their specific mission is to standardize collection and report on sightings of unexplained aerial vehicles. Quote, unquote. Vehicles. Uh, I I like that terminology. Now, of course, officials will not openly discuss the program. While itself is not a classified program, the details, the things that it deals in are considered classified. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, Now, uh, somebody that came up quite a bit in, in my research is the program's previous director, Louis Elizondo, former military intelligence official. He resigned in October of 2017 after 10 years with the program. Yep. Uh, He is among a small group of former government officials that is absolutely convinced that objects of undetermined origin have crashed on Earth. Um, And he knows that materials have been retrieved for study. And I think in a lot of cases, uh, one of the quotes that I saw was that they were not Ours, our, you know, quote unquote, not. And when he said ours, he didn't mean America. He wasn't saying they weren't American. He was saying they weren't of Earth. Of Earth. Now, we can branch out a little bit here. I mean, we're talking Independence Day. You know, interstellar visitors. Th- those are going to be pretty intelligent, pretty advanced life. But I think there are other theories also posit that these could be extra dimensional, uh, or possibly even time travel. Right. I've I, heard that as well. I think extra dimensional seems to be the one that a lot of people are. Or possibly even visitors from our own planet that we are that we are not currently familiar with, which when I think that, of course, I, my my brain automatically thinks things like Atlantis and, and the like. But I'm not, I and I hadn't had found reference to that specifically. But again, like unexplained visitors on our own planet, which could possibly explain USOs, un, unidentified submersible objects, right? Which is a pretty common phenomenon right. too. And you had touched base, and I'd also saw some stories where it kind of involved time travel, almost as if our future selves or possibly our descendants are trying to come back to possibly warn us of things, but they can't 
of course, you get into the whole time travel thing. Yeah. You can't alter it too much or you unravel everything. Well, even even the discussions on Little Gray Aliens sometimes say that maybe that's a, a future evolution of humanity or, or some branch thereof. Now, uh, another guy whose name I stumbled across was Eric W. Davis, an astrophysicist that worked as a subcontractor and a consultant for the program. And apparently he's been involved with them since 2007. He said that in some cases, examination of the materials had failed to determine a source. Like they weren't, they weren't United States, they weren't Russian, they weren't Chinese or Japanese. They, uh, he's, I mean, specifically his words: "We could not make these ourselves." Now, as Eric W. Davis, he he now works for Aerospace Corporation, which is a defense contractor, and he still gives classified briefings to the Defense Department from time to time hmm. uh, about retreat. As recently as this March, he was in front of the Department of Defense. And uh, he specifically talked about retrievals of off-world vehicles not made on this Earth. Now, you keep saying the word vehicles. Well, so are, you, say, are you saying that this gentleman is he's openly admitting that they have found vehicles, spacecraft, some, some sort of enclosure to hold a body? Well, I think we need to be careful to say spacecraft. Okay. Again, you know, for this is an extra-dimensional or, or even unexplained visitors from our own planet. Uh, and again, that that's a conspiracy theory all of its own. But, I mean, when they say vehicles, I think a lot of times they do mean aircraft. I mean, they're specifically talking about aircraft. And when we talk about retrieval of off-world vehicles, I mean, obviously. But here we have government officials in government capacity giving briefings on the retrieval of off-world vehicles. Openly admitting. Openly admitting that we don't... We, we couldn't build these things. These are things of sci-fi movies that are factually, physically occurring that the government is now admitting. Uh, just to kind of put a capstone on all of this, uh, as I was doing my research even, I found an article uh, just this past Friday, August 14, 2020. The Pentagon announced they are launching a new task force to better understand the UFO phenomenon. So this is something Here they're still again. working on right now. Another chapter. <laughs> You may be surprised to learn that in the beginning of the 20th century, the majority of rural Ireland and Britain still had the steadfast belief in the existence of fairies. The term fairy comes from the word fay, which in turn derives from the old French word of fii. The word came in from the Latin uh, as feta. The fates were supernatural beings that played a major role in the fortunes of humans. Depending on where you want to take this, and where you want to do your investigation work, the truth is the little people, as they are known, all types of fae are all over the world. They appear in Ireland, in Britain, obviously in the United States as well. I saw stories of uh, Aboriginal Australia. Australia, Germany. I mean, it's like everywhere there are some mentions. And again, as kind of our intro when you first hear the word fairy, you might picture Walt Disney's beautiful Peter Pan with the flighty, fluffy little wings. Um, well, if nothing else, my, my looking into this topic, and of course I've been interested in fae topics for a while. Sure. Yeah, Tinkerbell and that, that depiction of the fae is, I mean, let's say definitely in the minority. Man. I think that's the censored child version for yeah, sure. Yeah, like, you know... We we want to compare, you know, Tinkerbell be the disney version of the original Grimm's fairy tales. And, and those, 
brutal. I mean, they, they, they live up to the name. Yeah, yeah. The word, or the race, I should say, of fae, actually covers a very wide spectrum. Uh, goblins, for example, is one version of the fae. They usually are envisioned to live in dark places. You know, people describe goblins as wearing clothes, or, you know, poor kind of miner's garb, usually. Probably a variation on the goblin, of course, the red cap. Red cap. Which have the... the Named, named by taking their caps and soaking it in the blood of and their the, victims. Yes, yes, yes. And I know they, they are known to plague miners. Yep. Hobgoblins is another one. Uh, often in lore, if you research it, they live in farms and rural areas. They seem to love the warmth of a fire hearth. Uh, they may enter a home to get near one. Uh, on occasion, they can become nuisance, but they're generally good-natured unless someone offends them. Uh, they're actually part of the Brownie tribe, which, of course, Brownies is another uh, fae. They're kind of the, the loners, if you will. Uh, brownies, they often live in dark corners of a home, maybe a cupboard, a hollow tree, under the stairway of an old home. Uh, for the most part, they're considered helpful fairies. They maybe even keep things tidy and pick up. Legend is that they appreciate it if you leave out a bowl of cream as a reward, but... Uh, you know, if you upset them, they can become very violent. It seems to be, both of those items seem to be pretty common thread. If you leave out some kind of treat or, or, or something for them, they're usually pretty pretty friendly. Sort of respect thing. They they can be moved to violence and anger pretty easily. I think a lot of the fae can be that. And, I mean, there's touch of the dark fae as well as the good or the light fae. Uh, oh. We we talk about little people, but even in a you know if you look at Scandinavian lore and, and trolls, their trolls range from you know little people, little woodland trolls all the way up to gigantic Giants, monsters. Exactly. Um, and trolls, of course, is another race of the fae. Well, and I would think you know I, I'm kind of the kind of a pop culture person. The the movie Troll Hunter kind of depicts kind of where they're at. Like in a they're in Finland, Denmark, Sweden, places like that. They actually divert roads if they think they're going to impinge upon troll territory hmm. or fairy territory. There's a lot of references, of course, of trolls that live under bridges and stuff like that that some of the old uh, childhood tales come from. But if you go back in history, a lot of times a secluded old bridge was where you might spot a troll, you know. But then, again, moving on, pixies. Um, that's more of the Tinkerbell style. More of the, yeah, the Tinkerbell variety. Uh, they're associated mostly with England's West Country region, uh, Cornwall area. They're known to be mischievous creatures, uh, capable of doing good and or harm uh, to humans. Uh, they often were accused of making fresh milk go sour overnight. That seemed to be one of their little tricks that they did. They were the ones that you definitely wanted to leave gifts out for. Uh, it could be a sweet treat, uh, could be some dried flowers, piece of silk, maybe a piece of jewelry. Uh, but they pixies are kind of those mischievous ones that would tie your shoelaces together, you know, that kind <laughs> of stuff. And then, of course, we get into definitely Dungeons & Dragons style elves, dwarves. You know, elves are of Norse mythology, and it does mention dark elves and light elves. In Scotland, dark elves are known as trolls. Actually, we were talking about trolls. Uh, so in Scotland, that's what they're actually known for. In Danish lore, male elves appeared as old men. And if you got too close, they would open their mouths and cause sickness with their breath. I had never come across that. I thought that was interesting. 
Females danced in the moonlight, and young men were warned to steer clear uh, <laughs> of the charming of the elf that would steal their heart. Well, that makes sense. Uh, you know. We've heard some stories and, along those lines. Dwarves, of course. I think most people are familiar with dwarves. Particular fairies associated with Icelandic or Indian lore. Dwarves typically live within the earth and mined it for precious stones and metals. I mean, we're taking this right out of Lord of the Rings and, and Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, the magical stones that un- they unearthed gave them wisdom and the ability to become invisible, it actually mentioned. And it goes on. There's gnomes, there's nymphs. Uh, obviously, nymphs lived in the forest. Well, when we first started talking about doing this podcast, one of the things that uh, popped up on my radar, and, and I was shocked, I guess disappointed even, that some of my D&D group that I play with was not familiar with what the Cottingly Fairies were. And so I believe I got to talking to you, and it's was like, man, maybe we, we, we need to do something on the Cottingly Fairies. And see, that, that kind of caught me by surprise, because the Cottingly Fairies, you know, even in the mid-90s, there's a feature film yes. maybe 2000s early 2000s yep. but there's a, a whole movie about it it seriously the cotton leaf fairies give you a little history basically started in 1917 uh it's when two photographs came forward they were taken by two cousins uh over in england elsie wright and a francis griffiths yep uh, they were two young cousins who lived in Cottingley uh, near the area of bradford in england they sparked the interest of an author of that time frame, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yep. And he had been very open into metaphysics, uh, mythology, just a, a well-opened mind, you might say. And you got to remember now, this is 1917. There was the fairy society. There was all of this stuff. It was kind of a spiritualistic movement these two photographs just pop up and at first there was only two and sir arthur conan doyle just full-fledged accepted we now have physical proof that fairies exist now again you got to remember 1917 cameras back then weren't anything like what we've got now yeah and one of the first questions you might ask was well you know how did this two young cousins you know the ages of like eight and 12 or whatever get a hold of a camera well one of the girls father was a photographer and they would often go out and play on on the hills and by the streams and they'd come back with these fanciful stories of playing with the fairies and of course the mom and and i'm assuming based upon what i'm reading servants uh, they were pretty well to do they didn't believe them of course and so the girls took it upon themselves, well, we're going to go borrow daddy's camera and we're going to bring you back footage, which they did. And they brought back these two very clear photographs with the girls in the foreground and the, I'll call them pixie Tinkerbell type. Yeah, they were the, the Tinkerbell variety. Yeah, back in the background, kind of playing in the flowers. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had uh, heard about this in a local newspaper and he had been commissioned to write an article about fairies in the Strand magazine uh, of Christmas of 1920. So, you know, 1917 to 1920, he finds out about this a few years later. He goes over, he interviews the girls, gets permission to use the photographs. I think that's where they were actually first printed, besides a couple local newspapers. 
and the war, it just took the world by storm. I mean, here again, 1920s, we've got actual footage of fairies. People started coming to their houses. They were offering money to be able to go out and to try to see the fairies. And, of course, teenage girls at this point in time, I think they were enjoying the limelight. Uh, the family was a bit awestruck that there was so many that wanted to believe that would make the trip, uh, even from the United States all the way over to England, to have a chance to go see these fairies. And, I mean, this went on for several years, and this was probably one of the best documented, well-known events. And that's what shocked me so much that today's society, there are so many people who didn't know it. As you mentioned, I think they did a movie about it. Yeah. Uh, the Ozark Howler. Or Black Howler, Nightshade Bear, the Devil Cat, my favorite, <laughs> the Hoo-Hoo. The Hoo-Hoo. This is an interesting one that kind of takes place in our neck of the woods, so to speak, here in the southern Missouri Ozarks. Uh, also includes Arkansas, Oklahoma, and as far south as Texas. Well, despite of its size, as mentioned, uh, the size of a large bear, very muscular, often it's on all fours, but can easily stand upright, being 8, 10 foot, maybe even 12 feet tall, depending on uh, the, the descriptions. Yeah, there's a, there's a supposedly even possible sightings of the, the Ozark Howler might be mistaken Bigfoot sightings, just for that reason. Ooh, interesting, because yeah. the Ozark Howler seems to be a lot of traits that seem to be reoccurring. Obviously, it has horns, and they mention two horns, kind of like a, a stag, an elk, some do mention a deer, glowing red eyes, and a long, unkept, kind of shaggy black hair. Uh, and then obviously the howl that it has, which has been described as a woman's scream, a wolf's howl, kind of that elk's bugle noise. But whatever the sound is, they said it's extremely eerie and just kind of blood-curdling screams. Now, despite its size, the reports often say the similarities that it's able to leap, run, climb, spring without leaving tracks or very little sound. So the, the grace of a cat. So possibly even maybe a large mountain cat well, or something. I, I even have that here in my notes that a lot of people will describe it as being great cat, cat-like in shape. And yeah, definitely a cat's agility, you're moving silently, definitely. jumping, leaping. Yeah, and they're saying this thing can climb trees, uh, being able to leap like 12, 15 feet. Now, a lot of people or most believe that this is a unique, one-of-a-kind creature, uh, which explains why there's never more than like one being spotted at a single time. It's not like any sightings that I'm aware of, they've come across like a group of these or, or anything. Yeah, they're always one-off sightings. One-ofs, yeah. Now... A lot of possible origin stories on this. Uh, one origin belief is this creature is that of dark black magic. A cursed soul or possibly even a skinwalker or a wendigo. Some people believe this creature is possibly a black cat familiar uh, owned by a dark witch who lived in the Missouri Ozark area. Some folks believe it could be a, a branch of the hellhound or even the black dog of death of British folklore. You know, seeing the black hound supposed to be ominous and per, you know important of doom or, or death hellhounds i've that's, heard uh, it's even in uh, the harry potter movies yep. cerebus cerebus however you want to yeah. pronounce it another possible origin is that it's being a flesh and blood creature thought to be extinct 
possibly similar to that of a saber-toothed tiger, uh, which remains have been found in the Missouri, uh, Arkansas area and surrounding states, and maybe somehow it has managed to uh, survive. But that kind of contradicts the, I've only seen one of them at a time, because obviously there would have to be a family of them. Some people believe it could be possibly a, a displaced hyena, or maybe, uh, maybe wild boar or eastern woodland bison that's just kind of in the wrong spot. Another kind of... Th- Fourth possible origin is that it's a hybrid crossbreed, kind of like what you were touching upon, but it's actually believed to be very docile, which a lot of the sightings that you'll see are actually all of them. I've never saw where it's been attacking anyone. It, it now, frightens people. It scares, say, it scares them. people. It definitely has an air of aggression about it, but yeah, it never seems to attack anybody. There's no tales of that. And the thought is it could be like a herbivore and, you know, not even a meat-eating uh, creature whatsoever. So there's there's a lot of possibilities out there and then i I skip up to another little quick anecdote in 1980 where a truck driver had pulled off for the night and he read about this this eerie howl of this creature this i mean how do how do we just combination wolf's howl elks bugle hyena laugh i mean the the howler is known obviously for its howl yeah Yeah. and uh i don't remember if it said he'd see saw the howler or not that night but that he'd for sure heard it in my research, I had come across, it was 1980s, truck driver reportedly pulled off the side of the road. Uh, in his headlights, a large, long-haired black cat, as he described okay, it, yeah. with a pair of straight horns and glowing red eyes crossed the road in front of him, staring up at his windshield. Uh, it was reported to be nearly 10 feet in length, not accounting for the long tiger-like tail. Now, the horns keep coming up, and as we know, you know, you and I, most people, you don't have any kind of breed of wolf or cat or anything that has horns on its head. Common to the Wendigo mythology, though, seems to be antlers. Right. Now, the Wendigo is typically human humanoid shape, but the, the antlers seem to be a common part of that, that vision. Uh, and this truck driver reported that as basically a large cat-like, which does go back to the saber-tooth type uh, witness accounts, too. Yeah. Um, I, I had stumbled across, I thought, kind of an uncanny story I wanted to share here real quick, and I call it the church story. Uh, in the late 1890s, there was a church in Arkansas that had a stained glass window depicting this monster. Now, I thought, huh. how odd is this? While many thought this was strange, the church officials stated that they just wanted to honor the local history and the beliefs. The stained glass stayed present in the church until a new minister was hired many years later, who was not supportive at all for anything not of Christianity (laughs) and demanded it be removed immediately. Now, according to legend, uh, the historic account was within weeks, the church burned to the ground once that stained glass window was removed. See, there there seems like there's more of a supernatural element to some of the sightings. For sure. The, The locals believed it was due to the howler retaliating due to the lack of respect for its, its place in the Ozark tradition. The legend of Boggy Creek. So back in the 70s, 70s, there was a batch of sightings near Falk, Arkansas, in Miller County. Uh, the initial sightings were focused around the Jonesville slash Boggy Creek area, uh, with later sightings ranging as far as several hundred miles from the original pl- uh, location. So to call the Falk Monster the Falk Monster... A little misleading. It seems like they just slap that name on any creature that appears within 100 miles of there. Uh, one detail I thought would, would be interesting, at least on a personal level for you and I, 
was the Falk monster was named by reporter Jim Powell. Jim Powell. Which uh, Jim Powell used to be a, well, Eric and I's boss once upon a time. Yes. I'm sure it's a different Jim Powell. <laughs> uh, but he worked for the Texarkana Gazette and the Texarkana Daily News, and he coined the name Falk Monster. And it's kind of a generic name. I mean, obviously, we're in Lecklead County, so I guess if we had a similar one, it would be the, the Lecklead Monster. You know, or just they call kinda... it the Lebanon Monster, even if you saw it in Columbia. Yeah. yeah Something like that. A little, little vague, and I, I don't know. Now, as far as the appearance of this great beast goes, I mean, when you think of Bigfoot, you think of hairy hominids. They all kind of look very similar. He's a large, hairy hominid covered in long, dark hair, estimated to be seven feet tall, between 250 and 300 pounds. The chest is reported to be three feet wide, which makes him a pretty big boy. Barrel chested. Now, later reports will increase the height up to 10 feet tall and the weight up to 800 pounds. Of course, as time goes by, apparently he grows. He's eight very well. Has a terrible odor, which they can uh, describe as the combination of skunk and wet dog. Very Which squashish. Gross. But again, the smell, you know, that seems to be part and parcel. In, in the stories of Momo, the Missouri monster, they describe a smell. Of course, in Florida, you have the skunk ape, and that right. is literally named for the smell. And a lot of times they say they smell it before they ever see it. That actually causes them to pause and investigate a little further. Now, the beast has bright red eyes described as roughly the size of silver dollars and is said to leave a variety of track and claw marks. Uh, one set of footprints measured 17 inches long, 7 inches wide, and quite a few others showed only three toes. Three toes seems to be fairly common for this particular I monster. I also came across that in my research. But there are sightings. They, they say, you know, maybe a couple per year of what they call the Falk monster. And I'm going to assume, judging by, you know, location, that, that he does roam around a little bit. He's not just local to that area. But every year they have sightings. Even back uh, in some of uh, the... Some of the, my research here, I would say in some years there'd be as many as 40 sightings and then fail to detail any of those sightings. See, that I also so. come across a lot of that, that. There was a lot of stories, a lot of uh, sightings. Most are pretty vague. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't come across what I would call physical evidence of any like cast tracks or blood samples or fur samples. And that seems to be the thing with the Falk monster. All, almost all evidence is anecdotal. It's somebody who saw something. I found, at least in my research, that, and I'm going to say heavily, over 50%, I'm going to say closer to 60% of the sightings seem to be by women, almost like it was targeting women for for lack of a better term well, I, stalking I, them if you I will guess i didn't look quite as much into who saw the creature um i, I kept coming across and it would be uh, a you know a group of girls at a sleepover party it would be a, a couple wives who their husbands was working night shift and that common thread seemed to come through not a hundred percent but again more often than not it almost seemed like it was stalking women or children as the case could be going back many, many years to the early seventies. And the first film actually talks about it. The Falk monster, the legend of Boggy Creek, whatever you want to want to call him or her took place really heavily into the sixties and seventies seemed to be very strong for about 50 years. And then there was an incident with a small boy who had some hunting dogs and he went out to, he, he thought that the dogs were chasing a deer possibly. So he grabbed his gun and, and again, Maybe not in today's society, that might not be accepted, but this this young boy was probably 13-ish, unsupervised, 
but again, we're in a very rural area, a lot of wildlife. And, you yeah, know, this, that wouldn't be unheard of. Yeah, this was pretty normal for the time frame. But he grabbed his guns, cha- uh, started chasing his dogs, who he thought was chasing a deer. Before he caught up with them, he heard the dogs yelping and kind of screaming. And he, he finally got up there trying to figure out what was going on. He thought possibly it was a bear or a mountain lion. He did see some of the dogs that uh, had been attacked by something. Now, they were running the opposite direction at this point. Um, but he came face to face with the Falk monster and the, in the movie, it depicts it quite well. The kid is just absolutely panicked. Uh, the creature turns and looks at him and he fires two shots just directly right at him. The monster lets out these bellowing screams. Obviously he has been hit. He has been injured. Uh, the boy trips over his own feet, drops the gun and literally just runs as fast as he can back to go get help at the house. Now, in 1971, seems to be the main sighting, if you will, that kind of gets all this started. And so on the night of May 2nd, Bobby and Elizabeth Ford have probably what is arguably the most well-documented, the most commonly accepted encounter with the Falk monster. They had heard something moving outside uh, late at night for several months prior to what they would consider their encounter. So not being locals of the area, they had just recently moved in. They didn't really know what was going on. They didn't know what kind of animals they had in the area. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the this is two families that had come together to kind of save money. I believe the husbands had taken a job at a local ranch, and so the husbands were away working nights, so the, the wives and the kids would be together. Uh, it, it's Now, it's possible that that is their situation. Now, the night in question, I believe the... The husband and his friends were out hunting is what I have documented. Yes, yeah. yes. I think we're on the same families. So, yeah. But uh, most most uh, versions of it just account it to the Fords. So, they, their living situation may have been something, you know, different. Now, uh, other witnesses of that night include Bobby's brother and what, what they called his hunting companions. So, they must have been out hunting that night. But originally, the men spotted the creature around back of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took a shot at it, and they said they saw it fall. And then they started back towards the creature. They wanted to, you know, well, I mean, obviously, they want to see what they'd kill. They yeah, didn't know what it was. Wanted to pursue it. When Bobby heard a woman scream from the house, and so he takes off running. Now, Elizabeth Ford was asleep on the couch while everybody was out hunting that night when a large arm reached through the window to grab her, tried to snatch her off the couch. She saw the creature's large red eyes through the window and, and obviously let out a scream, which which got Bobby's attention. Bobby came back and was attacked by the creature. At one point in time, it grabbed him even. And in his own words, he ran. He, he managed to get away and ran home so fast that he just ran straight through the front screen door. <laughs> Didn't even bother to open it to get away from this beast. The men took shots at the creature mm-hmm. at that point in time. Uh, they claim that they never found blood. They believe they'd hit it, but they didn't seem to find any traces of blood. And there was an extensive search that failed to turn up any more details of the creature. They said it moved very fast. They found the traditional three-toed footprints near the house. They found scratch marks on the porch and damage to the window in the house siding near where it would have reached through the window. The, The sheriff's department came and investigated. The area, I believe Bobby went to the hospital and he was, it is documented, he did have scratches. Right. But the old boy did run straight through a screen door, so. Sure, sure. When when we took our vacation and we went down to Arkansas not that long ago, it was, one of my thoughts was even to go to Falk. I mean, that's how much this this creature is part of the lore that, that, 
I, I thought I was relatively close. Turns out where I was at was still a couple well, hours away. We thought away. the same thing, yeah. And yeah. I, I, I didn't feel like going that far out of my way, but if I'd been closer, I definitely would have gone to that town just to say I'd been there. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Ravensloft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.